Justice as we make our way through it. This week, we all got a, a clear revelation of the depravity of our world, didn't we, that we live in. The young man stormed a high school and shot 50-plus students and teachers, killing 17. And yet again, we grieve, don't we? This was a clear display of the wickedness of this world. This wickedness was just one display of the lostness of our world. Approximately 3,500 babies were murdered in the womb every day this week in our country. Evil is everywhere. The world can't cover its evil heart. It's on display. The world is confirming what we all know. The kingdom of heaven is not right here right now. The world is confirming this. We live in a fallen world waiting the final redemption. So contrary to our amillennial and postmillennial brothers, the kingdom is presently not here. The king and of the kingdom to come was here, but he returned to glory. And one day he is going to return and set up his kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. That day when things are cleaned up. And like we read in our passage in Isaiah 35, the lands will be pretty. There will not be, the holiness will reign on the world. I'm looking forward to that day. One thing I was struck with by, or by this week was how everyone in media and everywhere on TV and even on social media try to figure out solutions to this evil within. Humanity always thinks, we got this. We can fix the world. This is a problem across all spectrums, by the way. Everybody thinks they can fix it. And everybody has an opinion, don't we? I can fix this. I got this. Let me post my little comment on social media and show that I've got it all figured out. I know what we need to get rid of or what we need to do to fix. But listen to me, friends. The solution is not within. It comes from outside of us. Ultimately, national Israel had the same problem America has. They thought they could fix themselves. They could clean themselves up. They could restore their nation to its position of supremacy. We want to go back to the days of Solomon, and we can do it. We just have to manipulate these Roman emperors to get them to do what we want them to do. But folks... Our hope is not in ourselves. In fact, we have only one place where we can find hope. It's in King Jesus. He's our king. He's our priest. He's our savior. He's our coming Lord. And we need him to return, don't we? Jesus came and offered himself to his people. But they rejected him because they thought they could fix things and do things better. They were self-righteous and didn't know that they actually needed a Savior. We need a Savior, don't we? Please don't make the same mistake, beloved. Look outside of you to Jesus, not within you, for your hope. Don't think that you can clean yourself up. Because if you do, you're in a world of hurt. 
you're going to find that your only hope is outside of you. Hopefully you find that before you die, because otherwise you will see when you stand before him. Last week we saw that King Jesus began to offer the kingdom to his people in verses 12 to 25 of chapter 4. So far in Matthew we have seen Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament had promised for Israel's Messiah. Last week we examined four features of the start of Jesus' ministry. First, we saw Jesus began to offer the kingdom to his people. In verse 17, notice it says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus offered the real kingdom to national Israel. The kingdom was near, but not here. The offer was for the Jew first. The requirement to receive the kingdom was a national repentance. There was a need of a Nineveh moment for Israel. This obviously didn't happen as we will see throughout the gospel. Many people followed Jesus for a while, but it was definitely temporary. As a whole, many rejected the gospel of the kingdom. They rejected the kingdom and was primarily, that was primarily revealed in its king. The kingdom is still near today, beloved. It's not here. Yes, the king was here on earth, but he left. Now we're waiting for his return. The gospel of the kingdom is still being offered today. We offer hope. There's a kingdom to come. Repent and believe in the king who is to come. Now it's being offered to the nations because the Jews are presently under a partial hardening. As Romans eleven twenty five states, Paul states this, For I do not want you, to, you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we are what? Offering the kingdom. Saying, repent, believe in Christ Jesus, the king. So what is the required response for the coming of the kingdom? Where righteousness reigns and King Jesus rules over his people very simple. We saw it last week. Repentance and faith. Turning from our sins and believing in Jesus, the coming King. Turn from our sins and commit to Christ. So we saw the first element, or the first feature was that Jesus began to offer this ministry, or this kingdom to his people. Calling for repentance in verse 17. Next, we saw in verses 12 to 16 that Jesus offered the kingdom to the least likely of his people. In verses 12 to 16, Jesus goes to Galilee, and he offers this kingdom to the unclean Jews. He started with the Jews who were highly influenced by the Gentiles, the Jews who were considered the unholy people, the ones who rubbed shoulders with the pagan world. They were the Jewish people Jesus offered the hope of the kingdom to first the least likely. And then we saw Jesus called the least likely to be his wholehearted followers in verses 18 to 22. Remember, fishermen were his first disciples. And no, fishermen are not like today's fishermen. They were more unclean and dirty than today's, the ones that are on TV that we see, nice bass boat. $100,000 bass boats. That's not the kind of fishermen these guys were. 
These were the outcasts. But these were the first kingdom citizens. They were kingdom citizens of a kingdom which had not yet come. These men, in fact, will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel one day in the kingdom. How do I know this? Matthew 19 states it. Jesus said, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. These fishermen? The least likely. Those are the ones that he calls into his kingdom first to become kingdom citizens. In order to be a citizen of the coming kingdom, they had to leave everything and follow Jesus. And they did immediately. We were introduced to Peter and Andrew and the two Zebedee brothers, James and John. Then finally, last week we saw Jesus fulfilled all that the Messiah was to be in verses 23 to 25. I want to pick back up in there and look in your Bibles. Look at verse 23 to 25. And we see a little bit more about the setting of the table for the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news spread about him, or the news about him spread through all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We see here that Jesus is spreading the news of the coming kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. Notice there's three activities that Jesus does, and they're revealed in this passage. First, he teaches in the synagogues, the places where the Jews would get together and be taught from the scriptures. Unfortunately, they were not being taught from the scriptures, as we'll talk about in a minute. They were being taught everything but the scriptures. All the added little religious duties that you needed to do to be holy among the unholy pagan Gentiles that you lived around, being guilted into walking and following these man-made religious systems. He was also proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And finally, we see he was healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Teaching in the Jews, though, I want to kind of dig into this and, and look at something very interesting. He was teaching the Jews in the synagogue, and it wasn't because they had the word. He was teaching and bringing the word back to light. They knew their religious system, but they didn't know the word of God. They understood that the, what the Pharisees and scribes told them to do in order for them to clean themselves up and look good and be righteous. They were well aware of all the added means of works righteousness. Going to one of these services in the synagogue before Jesus showed up would have been just like going to a Roman Catholic service today. Would have looked the same. Pious people walking with nice robes, long dangling tassels showing off their own holiness in their mind. But they needed the scriptures, didn't they? 
They needed to be taught about the way of salvation. They needed to be taught doctrine. They needed to be given an exposition of the law. They needed the law to be explained so it was a means of working and showing them that they were in sin and they needed a Savior. They needed the law to be taught so that it would expose their hearts. They needed the prophets to be explained and and shown that the kingdom was coming and that in order for the kingdom to come, there must be repentance first, as we read in Jeremiah last week. They needed the law to be explained so it wasn't a means of working their way to heaven, but to know that they needed a Savior and that they would fall on their faces and cry out to Him. They needed to understand that God's righteous ways are far above man's ways. Interestingly, look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. Chapter 7. This word teaching is used again. At the end of the sermon, verse 28 of chapter 7, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Very interesting. So what is the Sermon on the Mount? It could very well be the the sermons or the teachings that he would have taught in the synagogues. It includes both the teachings that he taught in the synagogues and the proclaiming of the kingdom. The same things probably in the Sermon on the Mount, but he was teaching this to the common folk, the disciples, the fishermen that often were told to sit in the back at the synagogue at best. So what did Jesus teach them? Probably exactly the same as what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he would say. You notice throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's references to the Old Testament law. He brings up a reference to the Old Testament law, and then he does an exposition of it. And he explains, wait, let me really explain what the righteousness of God is. Very interesting. This is the teaching they needed. But there was also this need of proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom to come. The good news, the offer that the kingdom was near. They would receive these blessings of the kingdom. Now, some of us might say, was Jesus proclaim- what was Jesus proclaiming about the kingdom? Well, we can't say Jesus was saying, I'm going to die and start a spiritual kingdom. I'm the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. I don't think he was saying that. Let me tell you why. Remember Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? If he was really clear and had been going over and over, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Christ, repent and believe in me, there's this spiritual kingdom that's coming. If that's all he was saying, why is it that when the disciples answered them, they gave him every answer but the true answer of what people would say, except his disciples that were closest to him? what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did God, or what did the Lord say? He said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but God. There was a hidden part of who Christ was. Still, 
Christ was offering the kingdom and saying these things were coming, but you must repent and believe. You must turn back to God for the kingdom to arrive. And Jesus then warns them in Matthew 16, 20. Now listen closely. He warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Tell no one that I'm the Christ? Doesn't that seem contrary? No. Because what he was doing was proclaiming the good news that the kingdom was coming, it was near, it required repentance. They never repented. They never repented. As a whole, people would follow him and flock to him, but they would flock to him for what reasons? To get something. To get their bellies filled. Or to even get a healing. They weren't coming because Christ was their need of a savior. They thought they were self-righteous. Oh, the vast majority. Yes, large crowds followed. But they followed with wrong motives. What is the proof? Well, look at the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't give all these encouragements that, wow, you repented. Let me tell you about the kingdom. I'm the God that's going to die for you. He continues to bring the law to bear on them. He continues to pull it up and show, no, the holy standard of God is what? Way up there. Why? He was trying to get them to what? See their need of a savior. They needed to see that they were sinners. They needed repentance. I believe Jesus was proclaiming the Old Testament passages and explaining those and saying, the kingdom is near, but there will be a judgment first. That there must be repentance. There will be a judgment. You must turn. Live as kingdom citizens by grace through faith, even though the kingdom is not here. And Jesus was giving the people a, a glimpse of the age to come. He was showing them through the healings what it was going to be like. And again, as I said last week, there won't be needs of hospitals in the Millennium Kingdom. Doctors are going out of business in the Millennium Kingdom. Sorry, Bob, but there will not be any pharmacists. King Jesus is the healer. We saw a glimpse of him. And how he provides life right in the ends here. He says he heals them. Epileptics and paralytics. You never see any paralyzed people get healed at Benny Hinn conferences, do you? I went to one. I know what it's like. You know, all the people with the real sicknesses, the real injuries, the ones that are in wheelchairs, you know where they end up? They end up in the middle where they're getting counsel the whole time. And if you have an inward one, an inward sickness, a feeling or something, they put you on the outside and they bring you right up on the stage so we can knock you down. But all the real sick people, where they stay? Right in the middle and they never get close to that stage. Because no paralytics ever get up and walk away. Because once the... 
it's severed. Your back's severed. You ain't walking. But Jesus had them. Jesus was the king of the kingdom to come. Jesus was giving them a glimpse of the glory of the kingdom. He was showing them what the kingdom of heaven was really going to be like. The king was healing the people. Healing every kind of disease. MacArthur states this, The New Testament miracle age was for the purpose of confirming the word and offering the kingdom to Israel and giving a taste, a sample of the kingdom to come. We read in our passage in Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6, The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams of the Arabah. Now it's very important that that passage in Isaiah 35 is talking about when. It's talking about the kingdom to come. But Jesus references it as a part of his ministry. In other words, believe in me, the king, who will make these things possible, when he says this to John the Baptist. But these things are not completely fulfilled until what? The kingdom to come. That's when there will be no more blind. We have a deaf ministry here, beloved. Why? Because the kingdom is not here. Folks, Jesus was making disciples, followers, kingdom citizens of a kingdom that was not yet here. To be a kingdom citizen did not mean the kingdom was already started in a spiritual way. Obviously, Jesus hadn't died yet. And he hadn't rose from the dead and he hadn't sent the Holy Spirit. But they were kingdom citizens anyway. They were regenerate. Yes, God had restored, changed their hearts. They had repented and believed the disciples. They were committed wholeheartedly to Jesus. They were waiting for the kingdom to arrive. They were learning firsthand from the kingdom what the kingdom was all about and what was required by the king until the kingdom arrives. The Sermon on the Mount is the king's instruction to his kingdom citizens as they wait on the arrival of the kingdom. Okay, so do you get this? This is so important. The Sermon on the Mount is how we're supposed, or how they were supposed to live in light of the kingdom to come. The kingdom citizens, the disciples, how they were supposed to live in light of the kingdom to come. The kingdom hadn't come yet. He was telling them how to live in light of that kingdom to come. So, the question is this. How does this apply to us? We're not Jewish. How does the Sermon on the Mount apply to us? Weren't the kingdom, wasn't the kingdom being offered to the Jews? Listen closely, very closely, because I admit it, I lean to being a dispensationalist. Listen closely. Listen. We respond exactly the same and should respond exactly the same as the Jews. Why? Because the kingdom hasn't come yet. It's the same message and it applies the same way. We're kingdom citizens if we've repented and trusted in Christ. 
We're still waiting on the kingdom too. And we should respond the same way as he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. I know some dispensationalists in the past have really blown this. They've said things like the Sermon on the Mount was, is only for the Jews during the Millennium Kingdom. And so this isn't even applicable to the church. You know what that is? Wrong. Wrong. It's very applicable because the king came. We know him, right? We've embraced him. And guess what we are? Kingdom citizens. We've turned from our sins and we've trusted in him. And what are we waiting on? The kingdom to come. So it's the same setting. Very similar. We are getting ready and we endure a world that is cursed. We are followers of the same king waiting on his return. In fact, because we are closer to the return of Christ and the start of the kingdom, we should take these orders just as serious or more. We need to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. So let's think through this. So what should be the effect of the Sermon on the Mount for us? There are instructions from King Jesus... And they should have a twofold effect. We're, I'm going to simplify this for you. It should have a twofold effect on every single one of us. As we study through this book and as we study through the Sermon on the Mount, I want it to have these two effects on you. One, we, are, we should be confronted to seek God alone for justification by this sermon. We should be confronted to seek God alone for justification by this sermon. What do I mean by that? Okay, I use some big words. What's the word justification mean? It means to be declared righteous with God. To be declared right with God. When we read this sermon, and as we go through this sermon, there should be one main thing, or the first of the two effects that should happen to you. One, it should crush everybody in the room. Every single person in the room should go, Wow! I fall short. No ability in me, there is no ability in me to be righteous. I can't be good enough. That's what the sermon should say to you. If it doesn't have that effect in your heart, then you're not breathing or you're not listening. Okay? That she confront you. Look at Matthew 5, 48. This is the law of Christ, an explanation of the law of God. It's confronting us, every one of us, and showing that we fall short of the perfection that God requires. Matthew 5.48 states this, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Crushed yet? I'm crushed. I need what? Justification. I need to be declared right by God. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. For the Pharisee, this should have been crushing, shouldn't it? Because the Pharisee was saying, I'm righteous. I'm righteous in and of myself. That should have crushed him. Be perfect like your heavenly father's perfect. The sermon should expose us. You know, we have a 
we have, you come to Grace Bible Church, it's a common thing. You will get your toes stepped on, right? Well, wait till we go through this sermon. <laughs> if your spiritual toes aren't stepped on every Sunday, all the way through it, then you have missed the train completely. You need the Lord, beloved. This sermon should show it. No one can hear the sermon and not be convicted by it. If you can hear this and say, I'm good, yep, I got this, then you are spiritually dead and conversion is necessary. The Sermon on the Mount should convict every soul. It is the righteous standard of God. It is Jesus' exposition of the law of God. It is the king's righteous way. There is no way a person should be able to listen to this and say, I'm okay. I got this. No way. They should all say what? I need a savior. <laughs> you shouldn't be able to get through the Beatitudes without saying that. Matter of fact, you can't get through the first line without saying that. In fact, if you read the first line, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that is a person that's crushed in spirit because they what? Need God. We need to be declared right by God from God outside of us. And our faith is not in ourselves; it's in Christ alone. He's our hope. However, also, not only is there a show there to show us a need of justification, we are also encouraged in our sanctification by the sermon. In our sanctification by our sermon, by this sermon. What is the sanctification? Sanctification is the process by which God makes us look like Christ. Holy. It's that process where God changes us and makes us look more and more like Christ, right? Well, this sermon shows us what our lives look like submitted to the law of Christ. So after being justified, after being declared right with God, our faith in Christ alone then works its way out, not to save us because we're declared right, but it works its way out in the process of God making us look like his son. And what does it look like? It looks like the Sermon on the Mount. We live like the people described in his sermon. We are the light of the world. We are followers of the king who are able to do Jesus' commands by direction in this life by grace alone, through faith alone. Not perfectly, but by direction. God does not, beloved, listen to me closely. God does not give us commands that he does not also provide the grace and power to live and abide in those commands. Jesus does not give the Sermon on the Mount only to crush us. He also gives us the Sermon on the Mount to guide us. And to show us that by the grace of God, as we trust in him, we can live by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone in him. We can do this. We can act like this. We can be that light in this world. 
So we are encouraged to live by the grace of God and by the power of God that's working in us. He tells us to pray, doesn't he? It's a command. Are you able to, com are you able to pray? Absolutely. Are you able to pray to the true God? Yes, if you're a kingdom citizen. If he's worked in your heart, you have relationship with him. You're able to abide in him. He tells us to love. He tells us to avoid hypocrisy. He tells us to be the light of the world. This is what repentant faith looks like lived out. True faith in Jesus rejects the self-righteous religious system of the Pharisees. It rejects the works righteousness ways of the Roman Catholics today. It rejects all the religious and all the religions that elevate human accomplishment and over uh, dependence on themselves. It rejects all that and says, follow Jesus. Next, I want to dig in on the substance of the sermon. What is the instruction about? I want you to notice the sermon has instruction on living now in the lost world in light of the future kingdom to come. Again, like I said, some dispensationalists of the past have made some big mistakes. They've said the Sermon on the Mount was only for the Jews during the millennium. But this couldn't be further from the truth. You see it in the sermon, you'll hear it. There are elements of the present age throughout the sermon. Suffering, persecution, being slapped in the face. That's not the kingdom. It's not the millennium. There's hope however, in the future kingdom. But the focus is on the present circumstances in light of the future coming. That's what the sermon boils down to. Look at some of the references of the future. Look at 5.4. Look at 5.4. There's future in mind. Blessed, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, for they shall be comforted. When is they will be comforted? That's future. That's in the future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted in the future. 5-5. Five, five. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit heaven. Doesn't say that, does it? It says the earth. Where is this? This is the kingdom to come. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When is that? Future. Future. Are you satisfied in how much righteousness you're displaying and the righteousness that you see displayed around you? No, not yet. I'm hungering for it. I'm thirsting for it. I'm pursuing it with all my might by the grace of God through faith in Christ. But I'm sure not satisfied, are you? Waiting on that day, looking forward to that day. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Anybody in here see God? If you do, don't raise your hand. We have a discussion afterwards we need to talk about. No, beloved, we're not seeing God. It happens in the millennium. 
Blessed for they shall be called sons of God. We know this, don't we, from Romans 8. When is the adoption happen? Trick question. When does it happen? Well, we're his sons. But the full adoption doesn't happen until Romans 8. We know after the redemption, right? Then we will be called, called, called sons of God. Romans 8, look it up. It says you will be revealed as a son of God. When does that happen? In the future. Now, here's the problem with the message that I'm teaching you and the message that he taught. What kind of right now blessings do we get? What kind of rewards do you get right now? <laughs> a lot of these are looking to what? The future. If you're all about getting healthy, wealthy, and rich now, this might not be the greatest sermon for you. Right? But beloved, it's not about that, is it? It's about the future. It's about the coming kingdom. This is not my home. One day I will see King Jesus. And his government will be perfect. Do you understand? There's a future element. Look at Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. That's future. It's future. So there's a future element of the sermon. However, there's also a present circumstance for the, ser the sermon. Before the kingdom arrives... Matthew 5.11, Matthew 5.11, look at it. Now is this kingdom living? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Well, let me ask you a question. Does King Jesus allow his people to be mocked in his kingdom? No. In the future, when he establishes his kingdom, people are not going to mock him. Do you understand? But we're presently living in a circumstance before the kingdom that allows for what? Insults. Wide is the way, he talks about, that leads to destruction. Is that during the kingdom? No. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's future. As Michael Vlock states, quote, Jesus tells his followers to be salt and light, Matthew 5, 13 to 14, which seems more appropriate in a decaying and dark world, doesn't it? Also, Jesus discusses not relenting, resisting, or rather, Jesus discusses not resisting an evil person and how to respond if one slaps you in the cheek in 539. He also talks about what to do if sued in court. Let me ask you a question. Are people going to sue each other 
You're in the kingdom? No, beloved. Litigation's gone mad here, hasn't it, in our world? It ain't going to be like that when King Jesus is reigning. But right now, we deal with it. We're waiting. And how do we deal with it? We respond totally opposite from the rest of the world. Block continues. One would not expect believers to be slapped or taken advantage of in his king in the kingdom. But such circumstances occur in our present age. And everybody in the room knows this, right? Is this a easy place to live? <laughs> no. So during Jesus' day, he was calling his Jewish disciples, his followers, 5-1, to live as kingdom citizens even though the kingdom was near, but not here. Act like a kingdom citizen even though the kingdom hasn't arrived. Live in this age where the enemy is ruling and reigning, the prince of the power of the air, but live as light in the world. The disciples were to be light of the age to come. Friends, this is still true for us today. We are to be a glimpse of the kingdom to come to the dark world by surrendering and submitting to Christ Jesus in all that we do. We need to live reflecting the character of our king and his righteousness. Even though the day and age we live in is, not, is characterized by darkness and evil, we should be lights. That's what Jesus said. And finally, the sermon starts with the in introduction in verses 3 to 12. That's the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. We're going to start these next week. The introduction for the sermon is these are the Beatitudes. They are the favor of God that produces joy. The blessed. Those that are favored by God that produce joy. We are the favored by God who are joyful. We are those people. Who are they? They're the merciful, the gentle, the meek, the peacemakers. That's the characteristic of true followers of Christ. Beatitudes are a summary of the sermon, actually. From 3 to 12, that's kind of an introduction and a summary of all that's going to happen in the rest of the sermon. They highlight things to come. So I could preach one verse at a time, maybe, and in the process point forward in the sermon to examples of how that looks lived out. That's exactly what happened. Again, it has both a present and a future element to it. The disciples are presently kingdom citizens, the first beatitude and the last beatitude. But they are to live in the lost world with an eye on the future reward of the kingdom to come. Finally, what I want to do today is just read the sermon. Now... You can, if you'd like, you can put your Bibles away and get the full experience. I'm not going to be Jesus. I'm not going to be that great. He read it and said it perfect. He didn't read it. He just said it perfectly. But you got to remember, he's talking to people that didn't have the Bibles. He wasn't following along in their various versions. He said it. He spoke it. He spoke it to the people. And I want you to just try and listen. Now, I know in our culture, our, our 
Everything's stuck. You're touching a screen all the time. Put it away. Stop. Listen, no Twitter during this reading of the Sermon on the Mount, please. Don't need it. Just listen. You can even put your Bibles away. And this is the only time I'm ever going to tell you that. I want you to listen closely. I want you to hear it. And I want you to ask the Lord to do something. I want you to ask the Lord to work in your heart. I want you to ask the Lord to convict you by the sermon. Ask, you, ask him to show you where you need justification. Where you need him to declare you right. That your hope is in him. And ask him to change you so that you will look like this. And confess sin to him as you listen. So here we go. You ready? Let's see what time. Okay. Y'all can handle it. Hold on. Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever annul, then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother 
shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard it said that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asks you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. Be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into an inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation and deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God 
and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow and they do not toil, nor they spin, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory is clothed himself like one of these. God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge, so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by this, your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! Take, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you, who when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want to be treat them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. 
Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Wow. What a sermon, right? Amazing. What a Savior we serve. Anybody crushed? Were you convicted? We need a Savior, don't we? Don't try to clean yourself up. Run to Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's the only one that did this perfect. We have a Savior that came into the world. His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. He lived the perfect life, then died on a cross, was judged for my sin, was put in a grave, rose from the dead three days later, ascended to heaven, and one day he's coming back. And when he comes back, judgment is coming on all those who do not repent and believe in him. Turn to him. Turn to him today. He's your hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words. Father, we recognize we need you. We pray that over the next weeks and months that you will crush us and show us just how much we need you. That none of us will get out of this place walking out thinking that we are self-righteous. We pray that you will bring us to the end of ourselves, Lord. Father, we know our hope is in you. We know it's found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to be lights in our world. Kingdom citizens of a kingdom yet to come. Help us, Lord, to show off our king, to proclaim King Jesus to call people to repentance and to live holy and spotless lives, lives that reflect our coming King. We need you, Father. We trust you, Father. We ask for the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit within us, for we know apart from you we can do 
absolutely nothing. Help us, Father. Work in us. Show us your glory. Help us to abide in the Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.